Good morning. Hi, I'm Michael Wendling, and this is my wife, Beth. And uh, Brandy's message this morning is uh, it's continuing on a series about marriage and uh, talking about forgiveness this morning. Uh, about 18 months ago, Beth and I moved into a, a new home, and I could tell at the time that uh, she was really upset with me about some things that I, I wasn't sure why. And uh, Beth's normally a very positive person, uh, more so than me, and she laughs a lot. And, but I knew she was frustrated and just uh, wasn't sure why. Well, I wouldn't use the word frustrated. I would use the word angry. <laughs> <clears throat> I was very angry. I was angry that the walls weren't painted. I was angry at different things that were broken. I was angry that uh, our backyard looked like a mess and our front yard looked like a mess too. But I remember sitting in the, um, in the living room of our house one day and just crying, just really frustrated. And I cried out to God and I said, you know, God, what is going on with me? I don't think this is just about the house. I think there's something more that's happening inside me. And I didn't have to think too hard to know that when we purchased this new house, uh, something rather sad happened to us. We were uh, expecting a second child, and we had gone for an ultrasound. And I was 11 weeks pregnant. I remember driving to the doctor's office so excited to see this new baby. And when they showed the ultrasound, uh, there was a baby, but there was no heartbeat. And so moving into this new house wasn't a happy time for me. It was very painful physically and emotionally. And so I thought, okay, God, that's why I'm angry at Michael. I'm, I'm feeling angry about this miscarriage and angry about that. But as I searched my heart, I realized that wasn't the whole story. There was more to it than that. It seemed like there was something even deeper that was going on. And so I asked God to reveal that to me. And he brought to mind two things. One was a comment that an acquaintance of ours had made when we lost uh, the baby. And they said, well, you know, if you had wanted more children, wanted more than one, because we have a son, if you wanted more than one, you should have started earlier. You know, technically that was true. <laughs> um, I... I certainly wasn't a spring chicken. Uh, I don't think I would even qualify as a summer chicken anymore. <clears throat> so technically that was true, but that cut very deeply into my heart. The other thing that the Lord brought to mind for me was a verse in scripture, Joel 2.25, in which the Lord says, I will repay to you the years that the locusts have eaten. I wonder if some of you have years in your past that the locusts have eaten. I have years in my life that I wish I could have back. When I was a small child, I was one of many children who was sexually and physically abused by a very evil man, a very hateful man. He was never punished for his crimes, at least not on this earth. To give you a, an idea of how hateful he was, he once took his son's head and, in a fit of anger, put it over the kitchen stove into a pan, over a pan of boiling water, so that the pan itself 
burned into his neck, forming a ring of blisters. This man uh, terrorized many people growing up. And he also, uh, in his later years, he was known for having a lot of children around him. Well, I'm, I know why. In fact, when he died, he, um, he had candy in his, all the pockets of his coats. I know this because it was my parents who were cleaning out his closet. You see, it was my grandfather that did this to me. And he kept, my grandfather uh, kept the secret with me by telling me that if I ever told my parents that they would be ashamed of me and they would give me away. And you know, a six-year-old believes that. And I believed it. And I kept that secret throughout my childhood, throughout my teenage years, and even into my early 20s. Looking back on that time is not pleasant for me. However, and I just have to say, I love that word, however. I love it. Because it shows that there's a twist in the story. There's a change of direction. And that change of direction came for me in graduate school at Northern Illinois University in my early 20s in a poor, I was poor as dirt, stinky little apartment, had no idea what was going on in my life. And I was flipping around on the channels one day on TV and I heard a man talking about a savior. And that man was Billy Graham. And after he gave his message and they started playing Just As I Am, and all those hundreds of people started going forward in that little stinky apartment, I knelt on the floor and I gave my life to God. And boy, did he change my life. He led me to a Christian counselor. I got into an incest survivors group. He led me to just the right people that completely helped me and changed my life, and life was good again, really good. So I wondered as I was going through this anger that was coming out at Michael, not only about the house, but also about the miscarriage, God, how is this tied to what happened to me years ago and things that I really honestly have already dealt with? How is that all tied together? Well, God revealed to me that I felt like he owed me a second child. You see, I felt like there were years, productive years of my life that were stolen from me, and I wanted some of those back, and I wanted to have another child. And I felt, I was really not angry with Michael as much as I was angry with God. As I spent more time with God, and this was over a course of time, it wasn't all in just one day, but as I spent more time with God, I he really showed me and reminded me of how much he had blessed me. Just the incredible circumstances he had saved me from as a child. The things that he had uh, done for me and led me to just the right people. He gave me opportunities after I had... um, after I'd gone through Christian counseling and after God had healed my heart, he gave me opportunity after opportunity to share my story. In fact, this is the first time I'm sharing it here at Windsor Road, but I've shared it on Christian college campuses across the country. I've shared it on Christian radio. It's been written about. There have been a number of times. It's ironic to me that 
Here my grandfather prom- asked me to promise never to tell. And God totally flipped that around, and I have told. And I have told of God's goodness. <laughs> I also remembered of just how I'd met Michael and just what a wonderful man he is. And when we fell in love and got married, I felt like the little kid Charlie in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You know, I got the golden ticket. I really felt that way. And after six years of marriage, I still feel that way. Uh, Maybe not every day, maybe not all the time, but most of the time. He also brought to mind, soon after we were married, we went to the doctor and asked if we could have children. And she said, well, it's possible, but probably not. Well, Mr. Probably Not is currently in the four-year-old room here at Windsor, (laughs) probably giving his teacher fits. And if we could only have one, what a one to have. Uh, He is my joy. He's also my workload, Um, but he's an incredible gift. You know, when God went through all those, just reminded me of all those things and many other things that I'm not even sharing here, I realized that um, he didn't owe me. I owed him. I owed him. And when I realized that I had nothing in my hands against him, I also realized that I had nothing against Michael. It really was never about the painting of the living room. Well, that'd be nice. But it, it, would, it was not about that. It was not about a new deck. Oh, I got a new deck. Um, it was not about that. It really wasn't. It was about things between me and God. And it was coming out in my relationship with Michael. And... Once I got my heart right with God, everything between us was good. I'm sure that part of Beth's frustration was, uh, actually was my fault. We, uh, we still have some walls that need to be painted. And, but uh, we've done pretty well. But uh, her, uh, her story shows that our relationship uh, is never about just the two of us. It, um, uh, anger and hurt in our present may be rooted in past relationships and uh, abuses, uh, but God is near, and he's central, and as Beth said, we have to be right with him before we can be right with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beth and I are facilitators in the, uh, uh, for the dynamic marriage class that's offered, offered here. Um, the, uh, the class has helped us learn to uh, uh, talk about our, our needs in a healthy way, to, uh, to move through conflict rather than avoiding it. Um, and not only have we benefited greatly from it, but uh, it's been an amazing privilege to see many other marriages that have been uh, transformed through that uh, short time together uh, with lasting change. So I was thinking if you're, I know for myself, if, if you're like me, you, you can invest a lot in your, in your job, your work, you, you may have your last ounce of energy going to your, to your children, uh, but it's time to put some work into our marriages. Let me tell you about another couple, a couple by the name of Paul and Edith Reese, uh, both in their 90s. 
uh, married over 60 years. And their pastor uh, once had some one-on-one time with Paul. And their pastor wanted to know, uh, the pastor asked Paul, do you need to still fight? And Paul said, oh, sure we do. Of course we do. Uh, He said, yesterday morning was a case in point. Edith and I were in our car. She was driving, uh, and she failed to stop at a stop sign, and it just scared me half to death. And Paul's pastor said, well, what did you do? And Paul said, well, I've loved Edith all of these years, and I've learned uh, how to say hard things to her, but I have to be careful because when Edith was little, uh, when she was a little girl, her father always spoke harshly to her. And today, even today, when she hears a manly voice speak in anger, even my voice, she's deeply, deeply hurt. And the pastor said, pastor said but Paul, Edith is, Edith is 90 years old. Are you telling me that she remembers a harsh voice that many years ago? And uh, Paul said, oh, yeah. Yeah, she remembers that voice uh, more than ever. The pastor said, well, well, okay, how did you handle the driving situation, you know, the other day? And Paul said, well, well, I simply said to her, Edith, uh, darling, um, after we've had our nap this afternoon, um, I have a thought that I'd like to share with you. And we had our nap, and then we had our conversation, and I was calm, she was ready to listen, and we solved our little problem. Now there's a smart man, and a wise man, a man who has learned that conflict is necessary, and conflict can be productive, so long as it's managed with mercy. It's got to be managed with mercy. And the pastor said, by the time I reach 90, I hope to be just like him. I hope I'm like him before I reach 90. (laughs) So we're talking about that portion of the vow this morning, uh, for better or for worse. Last week, we talked about what I take you means. This week, this week's message is for better or for worse. And it's a message about giving grace and mercy. It's a message about uh, forbearing and forgiving. It's a message about loving one another in spite of our differences, in spite of our quirkiness, in spite of our strangeness. And yes, in spite of our sin. So let me just front load the big idea. All right? If you forget everything else, don't forget this. This is what I want to say. This is what I want you to go home with. It's simply this. That a marriage rich in mercy. A marriage rich in mercy is a rich marriage. That's what I want you to learn today. And by mercy, I mean grace. A marriage rich in grace. A marriage rich in in clemency. A marriage rich in understanding. A marriage rich in forgiveness, forbearance. A marriage rich in mercy is a rich marriage. 
Now, I've got to tell you, church family, uh, when Sarah and I were in our courtship, and we were in our engagement and dating and all that, I don't ever remember thinking, ever, I don't ever remember thinking, wow, you know, if I marry her, uh, I'm going to have to give her a lot of mercy. I don't ever remember saying that, you know? And... Uh, I mean, you know, Sarah and I, we were dating, and, and we, we went to school at Cincinnati Christian University, and it's on, located on Price Hill, which overlooks downtown Cincinnati, and there was a place on campus called The Garden, and it just had this beautiful, scenic view of downtown, and we'd, we'd, we'd plop down at that, that bench at The Garden, and we'd look out at downtown and we'd talk for you know and and, and, and and hours would seem like minutes and we'd write notes to one another and we'd call each other and and we studied together and then I'd you know walk her to her dorm room and uh, to her dorm we weren't, we weren't allowed in the dorm room because this was a bible college all right but uh, so I would escort her to her dorm and then you know I would I would I would leave and she'd race over to the stairwell by the window and she'd wave at me and I'd wave at her and, you know, we would be waving and then we would do this, you know. (laughs) It was so sweet. And then we got married. (laughs) And this person that I so enjoyed frolicking around with I know how to live with. And this person that I would hang around with in order to escape responsibility now became my foremost responsibility. And, and, and things that attracted us to one another just kind of irritated us now. And, and you know, it's almost like you know, the act of marriage just took the veil off of just, just our quirkiness, you know? Where's the checkbook? Well, the checkbook's in the car. What's it doing in the car? You know, how come it's not where we agreed that it was supposed to be when we have this thing called checkbook? What's up with that? You know, where's the pizza cutter? Well, what do you mean where the pizza cutter is? It's with the table knife. Well, what's it doing there? Well, how come it's not in the general utensils? Well, who cares? Who cares when table knives and pizza cutters cut? I mean, what's up with that? It's in the car with the checkbook. Yeah. Is that where it was? I couldn't find it. You know what? Chances are, chances are at home, one of you is... Uh, a sock drawer spouse, okay? Yeah, you have dedicated space for your socks. Only socks go in the sock drawer. Now, the other of you hasn't even heard of the term sock drawer, okay? You don't want your socks to be organized. You want them to be accessible, And so the sock drawer spouse says to the non-sock drawer spouse, look, this is how it's done. This is how it's done. Through the annals of history, 
proper people have sock drawers. And, and, and you, you recite facts that you learn from the History Channel. And you, offer, and you offer historical evidence that people who rule the world have organized sock drawers. And your spouse replies, well, that may be true, but they don't enjoy it. So, these quirks. These quirks, marriage unveils how, how, how strange, how quirky we are, which calls for mercy, which we didn't think we needed. See? And it's not just our strangeness or quirkiness, it's not. Well, in many cases, it's our sin. It's our sin. And, and the act of marriage not only unveils our strangeness, but the act of marriage also unveils our sinfulness. Um, sinfulness in my heart that I didn't, I didn't even know was there. Yeah. See? So, so if I have a problem with control issues, I might say, well, I didn't have this problem before I got married. It must be my spouse's fault. Well, no. No, no, you were a control freak before you got married. You just didn't have the opportunities to show it that marriage affords. And this is why uh, Dave Harvey wrote in his book, When Sinners Say I Do, your spouse always hooks your idol. Always. Your spouse always hooks your idol. And what we learn is that if the kingdom of God is not sovereign over our marriage, then our marriage becomes a cold war. A cold war between the kingdom of Randy and the kingdom of Sarah. And I want you to listen to this account of a marital cold war as told by one couple's pastor. Pastor wrote in his journal after a counseling session, they just never came clean. Oh they, oh, they were skilled at pointing fingers and leveling charges. They, they were good at self-serving excuses. They were good at keeping records of wrongs. And by the time they stepped into the office, they were without hope. The pastor lamented, you, you just can't keep on rehearsing in your heart all the perceived wrongs against your spouse and expect to grow an affection toward your spouse. You can't. You, you can't convince yourself every day that the person you married is the chief cause of all your wrongs and then want to move close to that person. You can't. And you cannot carry with you a detailed rap sheet of what you've suffered at the other person's hands and then expect to have hope for your future. But that's exactly what this couple did. And so it was no surprise when in the course of the counseling session, when the pastor asked each to state succinctly what they thought was wrong with the relationship, with no hesitation whatsoever, immediately following the pastor's question, both uttered simultaneously each other's name. And at that point, the couple unwittingly fired the pastor. There was nothing more to be done. The only reason the husband was there was to get his wife fixed. And the same went for her. Both were entrenched with the delusion that the biggest marital difficulty was sitting next to them. There was no self-awareness, no self-examination, 
No, confession. I mean, if only one of them would have been willing to say, uh, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but, but, but even that small concession never made it to the table. Both were convinced that they had made the mistake of marrying a messed up person. Both were convinced that the other made them do things that they would, not, they would otherwise not have done. And both were convinced that they had no power to make the other person change. They wanted to be different. They wanted to break free. They wanted a fresh marriage, but they were unwilling to do what every couple must do. And in a word, it's mercy. You've got to be willing to ask for mercy, and you've got to be willing to extend mercy. You've got to be willing to confess, confess. And you've got to be willing to forgive. You see, confession is the ability to say, my greatest marital problem is me. It's me. And forgiveness is the ability to cancel the debts of the one who has sinned against you. And that's not easy. It's not. To do so, we must, surren- we must surrender contract love for covenant love. Contract love. Contract love is when we say, I love you if. Covenant love. I love you. Contract love exists for self-benefit. Covenant love exists for the benefit of my spouse. See? And in contract love, and this is important, don't miss this. In contract love, in contract love, the love sustains the marriage. In covenant love, it's the marriage that sustains the love, you see. A rich marriage is a marriage rich in mercy. Um, And if you want that, if you want mercy, if you want covenant love, then you've got to be willing to give up some benefits, some benefits, The benefits, you've got to be willing to surrender the benefits of unforgiveness. What do you mean, Randy? Well, I mean this, the benefit of power. You've got to be willing to give that up. You see, there's leverage in holding the past over your spouse's head. There's power in using your spouse's sin and strangeness against him or her. And so, so when we want our way in a particular instance, then all we need to do is just toss down the trump card and... Use it against our spouse to get our way. That's power. And who wants to surrender that? I'm thinking also of the benefit of identity, the benefit of identity. When I think about how often uh, my spouse falls short, well, that gives me the feeling of superiority. I'm better than her, more righteous than her, more mature than her. And in not so subtle ways, I communicate, if only she were just more like me. And in not-so-subtle ways, we communicate, you know, I really, shouldn't, I really shouldn't have to put up with the aggravation of your shortcomings. I would never say that while dating. Never. What changed? Laziness. Pride. 
coasting? You know, not thinking that I needed to do anything to woo her? You know, she signed the marriage certificate, the deal's done. Okay, now I can build my career or my church. And then there's the benefit of entitlement. Entitlement, yeah. Yeah, see, holding the mortgage over my spouse's mistakes, that keeps me in the driver's seat. That keeps me in control. Creates a debtor-creditor relationship. A you-owe-me, you-owe-me kind of relationship. That's a tough one to give up. I suppose if I were to just wrap it all up in a bundle, it would be, it would be the benefit of sovereignty. <laughs> See, when I'm sovereign, you know, I can dispense judgment on my spouse, and I can mete out consequences for my spouse's uh, sin. I can ensure that my spouse feels the appropriate amount of guilt for what he's done. And these are. These are tough benefits to pry out of our bony little fingers. And incidentally, if you buy into these so-called benefits, would you please consider some verses that I want to read, verses that I've put up on the screen. You're going to see these verses as they appear in your Bible, but please allow me the liberty of paraphrasing and personalizing these. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on their spouses, Jesus told this parable. Two spouses went up to the temple to pray. One spouse stood and prayed about self. God, I thank you that I am not like my spouse who steals and fritters the day away, who spends a lot of time doing a whole lot of nothing, while I sweat, and I work, and I give, and I help, and I serve, and I pay the bills, and I go to church, and I take care of the house. But the other spouse stood at a distance, would not even look up to heaven, but said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this spouse, rather than the other went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Never thought about those two people being spouses before, did you? Now how can I tell whether I'm spouse one or spouse two? Well, that depends on how you answer another question, and it's simply this. What do you think your spouse owes you? Hmm? What do you think your spouse owes you? You know, in Christian marriage, if you want a Christian marriage, my wife owes me nothing. Nothing. And if that scares you, I understand. But that's the answer. And it's really the only way to keep for better or for worse. And here's why. Here's why. Verse 14 says, you know, in verse 14 it says, I tell you that that spouse went home justified. What's that mean? It means that that spouse went home debt-free in the eyes of God. 
The Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, at the cross, Christ forgave us. At the cross, God the Father put my sin debt in the palm of Jesus' hand and he drove a nail through it. And so Jesus says, look, trust me. Accept my unchallenged leadership in your life. I forgive you, I cleanse you, I acquit you, I canceled the debt. Jesus says, you don't know, I paid it. I paid it. You see, forget Forgiveness is, forgiveness is free, but it's never pain-free. Someone always hurts when there is sin to forgive. So when my spouse sins against me, I can either hurt my spouse back or absorb the pain of my spouse's sin. And so Jesus says to me about my spouse, I, I, look, I want you to treat your spouse the way I've treated you. That's what I want. You want to say thank you to me for my death, burial, and resurrection? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to cancel the record of debt that you think your spouse owes you. The grace and mercy that I've given you, I want you to bend that grace and bend that mercy horizontally. I want you to aim it toward your spouse. I want you to treat your spouse the way I treat you. I want you to be the number one instrument of my mercy toward your spouse. That's what I want. And that's why Paul David Tripp says, forgiveness forgiveness is a vertical commitment followed by a horizontal transaction. A vertical commitment followed by a horizontal transaction. That's mercy. And if you want mercy to rule in your marriage, you've got to have some ingredients here. First, you need humility. If you want, what does it take to forgive and display grace and mercy? It requires humility. Isn't that what we read in that parable? You know what humility is? Humility does not expect to be treated better than Jesus. That's humility. Matthew 10, 25 says, if the head of the house, Jesus is talking, if the head of the house, that's him, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, that's another word for Satan, how much more are the members of his household? So, so humility doesn't expect to be treated better than Jesus. Humility does not pay back evil for evil. Humility is not life based on its perceived rights. 1 Peter 2, 23 when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Mercy requires humility. Mercy also requires, we'll just call it, Holy Spirit-empowered self-control. Holy Spirit-empowered self-control. To forgive, I have to say no to bitterness. I've got to say no to the desire to lash out at my spouse with angry, vengeful words. I've got to say no to my impulse 
uh, to spew anger. And instead, instead, I, I take those feelings and I bring them to... I, instead, I take those feelings that I want to extend horizontally and instead I take them vertically. God never says either stuff your feelings or vent your feelings. What does he say? Pray your feelings. I mean, that's what the book of Psalms is all about. Praying your feelings. Humility, Holy Spirit-empowered self-control, and then sacrifice. Sacrifice. What do I mean by that? Well, um, you know, sometimes we don't approach our spouses because we don't want to go through the difficulty of resolving hurt. <laughs> it's just a slog. And so, you know, I end up loving myself or loving my comfort or I'd I'd rather love not rocking the boat more than addressing what really needs to be addressed to my spouse. And I fear my spouse's rejection or anger or I fear that, you know, my spouse will throw my shortcomings in my face. We fear exposing ourselves to all possible dangers of loving confrontation. And and, and so we prefer self-protection over doing what would be helpful to the marriage. Well, forgiveness means the willingness to calmly speak hard truth. And that means sacrificing comfort, okay? And then a fourth ingredient is that forgiveness requires memory, uh, remembering. What is this forgive and forget stuff? That's hooey. We we don't forgive by forgetting. We don't forgive by forgetting. We forgive by remembering. See? See, and so for my marriage to be rich in mercy, here's what I need to remember. (laughs) I need to remember that not a day goes by in my life that I don't need mercy. I need to remember that I'll never outgrow my need for mercy. That's what I need to remember. I need to remember that I've been loved with a love that I can never earn. That's what I need to remember. And I need to remember that Jesus never mocks my quirkiness. He never does that. And he never finds delicious joy in throwing my failures in my face. He never threatens to turn his back on me. He never makes me buy my way out of failure. That's what I need to remember. And when I remember these realities, that will prepare my heart for the hard conversation that needs to take place with my beloved church family. (laughs) A marriage that is rich is a marriage rich in mercy. Is there mercy in your marriage today? Well, let me tell you about another pastor. Uh, This pastor's name was Gordon. And he met Emma at a church function. And she was an admirable young woman. He was a fairly new pastor. Their wedding held the promise of a godly couple serving in the kingdom. And a few days into their honeymoon, their honeymoon... This vision was shattered. Gordon told Emma that he really didn't love her 
and that he had married her because in the church world there were more opportunities for married pastors than single ones. Forty years and six children later, all while functioning in the role as a pastor, Gordon made no meaningful attempt to kindle love for his wife. In fact, he even admitted to an adulterous affair after child number four was born. Then he insisted that, you know, he must remain married or else his career would end and Emma was confined to a life of secret shame. In fact, she shared a bedroom with her two daughters and he with their four sons. I read their story. I'm thinking, how could she endure this? How could she endure this? Well, her story insists that it was one day at a time throwing herself at the mercy of God. She just, she just trusted Christ. And, and for four decades, mercy defined her life. And after four decades, her marriage ended in divorce anyway. An apparent ministry call squandered, a financially destitute family shattered by the unrepentant sin of one man. Amazingly, Emma, whose life had been lived one day at a time on the mercy of Christ, amazingly, after the divorce, she would occasionally write Gordon letters and send him birthday cards. And one day, one day, the mercy of Christ shattered this evil man's calloused heart. And after a career of pastoral work, church work, after a career of this, He finally became a Christian. And after his conversion, his adult children, all believers, all believers, lovingly and firmly confronted him over his sin. And for the first time, Gordon took responsibility for destroying the family. And as a part of his repentance, he wrote a letter of apology and confession to Emma. And she wrote him back, and this is what she said. It's with mixed emotions that I read your letter. Sad, as I was reminded of many difficult years, but also glad for the work the Spirit of God is doing in your life. Glad to hear you share your failures so frankly and ask for my forgiveness. And glad to hear you share them with your children. Gordon, I forgive you. I forgive you for not loving me as Christ loved the church and for your disregard of our marriage vows. Though I am saddened by many marriage memories, I have released them to the Lord and I've guarded them from the rages of bitterness. I rejoice in the mercy of God that in spite of our failed marriage, our children all serve the Lord faithfully. God uses confession and forgiveness to bring healing. I'm trusting God that that will be true for both of us.
Now, Emma and Gordon were never restored. In fact, um, well, later each died. Yet Emma's mercy triumphs. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Emma's mercy triumphed. And why? Because for 40 years, she knew she needed mercy from Christ. And, 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 and for 40 years, she had she'd lived under the discipline of the Holy Spirit, bending the mercy of Christ vertically that she had received from the throne of heaven horizontally to this evil man. And it's because she bent mercy to Gordon, he didn't die alone. He didn't. Her mercy reunited this repentant sinner to their children. Her mercy meant giving Gordon what he didn't deserve. He did not deserve to be forgiven for those years. He didn't. He didn't deserve the love of his family. And he did not deserve six godly, Christ-focused children. He didn't. He didn't deserve heaven. And he did not deserve to sit courtside to see Emma's Christ-saturated mercy. He did not deserve that. Each of these outcomes, though, point to the remarkable sweetening of mercy. Emma received it from Jesus, and she bent it to her family. Church family. A marriage that is rich is a marriage rich in mercy. That's her story. What's your story? What is your story where you are right now? What do you think your spouse owes you? Does mercy triumph over judgment or not? What do you think?